It's just your raw reaction to some of these pictures. And uh, we do record our sermons, so for those listening on uh, iTunes or on our website, uh, we'll describe what's on. Uh, do you do that, Joseph? All right. Well, that's very good. Uh, so we'll describe what's on the screens uh, for, for you. So this first picture, you've all seen this, right? It's the cop holding a radar gun. And uh, what is your reaction when you see that? <laughs> he, uh, he's, he, yes, he's being, he's being helpful, right? But your initial reaction is to slow down and perhaps maybe even, even if you're not um, speeding, to tap your, tap your brakes a little bit, right? And that's just your initial reaction. And some people take it to the nth degree. I mean, the cop could be on a side road, pull someone over, you know, out of his car, two miles down the road, and they're still slamming on their brakes. So maybe there's a little overreaction there somewhere. Uh, this next one. Big tarantula. Richard, you have those in uh, Trinidad, right? Yeah. I, I have been up close with a few of these in Trinidad. And um, what's your first reaction when you see this? Goodbye. Yeah, like, I'm out of here, right? Um, maybe even some, some high-pitched squeals and, and, and screaming. It, it kind of gives you the shivers when you see it. Um, and this next one I put up there for my barbecue friends. Yeah, that's right. So smoked brisket, right? Um, those of you who actually do like meat... Um, you see that and you think there's only one thing left to do. Chow down, right? Chow down. This next one cracks me up. This guy, it's a picture of a man happily with that cheese ball grin smile, you know, cleaning and his wife going, uh-huh, yeah, I asked you to clean and now you're doing it, right? Uh, reacting to, um, and, and come on, let's be honest, how many of us do that, right? Where we're just, they don't okay. Have children. okay, no children? They don't have children. Is that why they're trying to It's way too clean. Yeah. And, and I, I feel like there's some fear in this guy's eyes, <laughs> right? I mean, he's just got a smile on his face. He's like, oh, is he watching me? <laughs> you know, we, uh, when we recognize certain things, we do have a response. A, a response that's pretty natural, right? Uh, and we could put up a bunch of pictures, and we're not going to continue with that. But today what we're going to see, as we jump back into the book of Ezra, is we're going to see that, that Ezra has a recognition of something, and he also has a response that goes along with it. But before we get into it, I just want to share with you just a little bit from my heart. You know, when we began the study of Ezra, I was really, really excited about it. I, I honestly had never studied in depth the book of Ezra. Um, I, I knew it would be interesting. I knew there would be some really good nuggets along the way. Uh, I, I knew and was generally familiar with the content. So I knew the direction it was going. I knew that it would be challenging. Uh, from a study perspective, but what I also found is that it's rewarding for you and I as uh, we are challenged in how we live and apply God's word. I, I, I knew the book would end in sort of a somber way, and so we've made it to the last two chapters, uh, chapter 9 uh, and chapter 10, and we're going to break those up into two sermons uh, before we get to our survey of the book of Nehemiah. Now, for me, it is my job to communicate to you the word of God. To communicate to you in ways that inform you, in ways that inspire you, that challenges you, uplifts you, and, and hopefully causes some personal introspection. It really is, and I'm, on, I'm just being honest with you, it's an awesome challenge. And it's one that I certainly don't take very lightly. It, it, it's one that I, I literally I agonize over every time I come to the scriptures because I, I desire to handle God's word correctly. 
I, I, I want to handle it efficiently and, and in ways that, that bring him honor and glory and, of course, brings about change in the way that, that each of us think and the way we act and the way we speak. It's something that I absolutely love to do with all my heart, even though I agonize over it. I, I enjoy the process. I enjoy studying. I, I enjoy this. I enjoy interacting with you and delivering God's word and, and to see it take shape and to, to see what God can do with it through the power of his Holy Spirit. See what he can do when his word is taught and preached. I, so I, I jump at the opportunity. Every time I have the opportunity to speak or to share, whether it's here, whether it's the, uh, my, my girls go to Chesapeake Christian, I get to speak there every week, uh, whether it's in Sunday school or life groups, I, it's something that I know that I'm called to do. And yet, with all of that, I found myself, when I got to this passage, I found myself completely stalled out. Just stalled out, not having a clue where to go, how to start. And by the way, I've known about this day for a while. And over the last several weeks, as I jumped into it and, and I was praying and researching it, I just found myself not getting far at all. I mean, I could do the background work. You know, I, I could do that, that sort of stuff. I could research and read and read commentaries and, and look into the Hebrew text. But I want you to know that God's word is more than that. God's word is about transformation. It's about change. It's about life application. And it seemed to be the disconnect for me. I just, I had no idea where to start. So what I began to do was evaluate myself. Certainly there's something wrong with me if I'm having problems. The, the question I had was, why is it taking me so long? Why am I struggling so much with this? And so I began to write this paragraph to which I'm talking to you about now. And even as I wrote it, I was avoiding exactly why it was so hard for me to get going. Avoiding it at all costs because it made me uncomfortable. But it was something that I had to deal with. And so it's something that I want to share with you this morning. The truth is this. I struggle with sin. I struggle with sin. Some of you guys are like, yeah, no, we, we know that. We, we understand that. But it, I do. I struggle with sin. Now, you, you know that I'm a sinner. And, and uh, vice versa, right? I, I know the same thing about you. But look, I'm a sinner. I struggle. You and I struggle. And even though I'm a pastor and I'm, I'm, I'm charged with shepherding God's people, right? I'm, I'm charged with, with, with giving you the tools and equipping you to, to be able to carry out the ministry. I struggle as much as you do with sin. Maybe sometimes even more. I, I, just, I want you to know that up front. Because this morning, I, I, I'm not going to speak to you in a condemning way. Please don't, do, don't see that. Don't take it that way. God has me up here this morning just to be open and honest with you about who I am, but more importantly, who He is and what He wants from us. As we get into chapter 9, chapter 9 is a chapter that is going to call each one of us to take a look at ourselves. Doing an inspection to see, okay, how are we doing? We could call it a, a, a spiritual physical, perhaps. Today, what we will see through the, this man, Ezra, is that through the sin of the people, they were in desperate need of recognition of sin in their lives. And you and I, we are in desperate need of recognizing the sin that is in each one of our lives. We need to be able to recognize not only sin, but the seriousness of it. And when we recognize sin, we will lead us to an area of confession of our own sin and a recognition of God's sovereignty and His grace and His mercy. So as you hear the story of Ezra and the people of Israel, my hope is that it causes some inspection in our own lives. 
And so as we jump back into the book of Ezra, just for those of you who haven't been here through this study, and also for our own benefit, because I'm not up here all the time, I just want to go real briefly through the book, chapter by chapter, it'll take literally two minutes, just letting you know where we've been and what we've been doing. When we started the book of Ezra, we found out this, that the people of Israel had been in captivity for 70 years. God promised that, look, I'm going I'm to get you out of captivity, and he does. So chapter 1, we see God keeps his promises, and by the way, he can use anything and anyone to fulfill his plan. Chapter 2, we, we found out that those that went back to uh, Israel from Babylon, they went with a mission to rebuild the temple. Chapter 3, we saw that they were working with passion and with perseverance. Chapter 4 through 6, we saw that there was a lot of opposition in their lives. The one thing we learned about opposition is God can take that, that opposition and turn it into opportunity. Chapter 7, we saw that in order to bring change in our world, we need to be committed to studying and preaching and teaching God's word. The last part of chapter 7, we talked about how we should be recognizing the sovereign love of our God. Last time we got together, we found out that the goal in our life as a believer is not how great my life can be, but how great God can be in it through my life. And so today we're going to jump into chapter 9. And so you're going to see the, uh, we're going to have uh, the scriptures up on the screen. I am using the New American Standard uh, version. It will be up here for you. You can follow along um, and we're just going to jump right into it. Verse 1, we recognize right away as we jump into this chapter, there is a problem. See, the people had only been back in the land for about four months. And in that time frame, there was an issue that came up that, that was very obvious to the people. It was an issue that didn't seem to be driven by the newest people who came back, the second exodus. But perhaps it was driven by the, the people who came with Zerubbabel in the first one. The people noticed that they had not separated themselves from the people of the lands. This is, this is the bad thing, and we're going to talk about why. But first of all, before we get to the bad thing, let's look at the good, right? These people were actually doing something positive. See, it wasn't Ezra that pointed out the wrong that was happening. It was the people. The people brought it to his attention. It seems like the people were, were listening to Ezra. Remember, in Ezra 7, Ezra said, look, what, what I need to do is I need to set my mind and my heart to obey the law of God, to learn it, to practice it, and also teach it. So it seems like his teaching and his, his showing and, 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 and putting it on display, it was paying off. The people were seeing it. We see it even in verse 4 as the people tremble at the word of God, which means that they knew the word of God and they believed it. And so Ezra being faithful in preaching and teaching, the people responding, and they came to him and said, look, they are not being separated. Look, it wasn't about race as much as it was about belief. You see, it wasn't just flat wrong for, a, 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 for them to, to, to marry a foreign person. The book of Ruth shows that. But the foreigner must have renounced her old life and accepted the God of her husband, not the other way around. See, even David was actually a descendant from such a relationship. However, this command that God had for him, which, by the way, was part of the covenant that God made with them, it was found in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. God says, look, when I bring you into the land, this was part of the covenant. God says, I'm going I'm to take care of you. I'm going to bring you out of captivity. I'm going to bring you into the land. But there's some things that I want from you, some, some things that I expect. He says, look, when you go into the land, make no tree with the people that are there. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons. Because, verse 4, they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn. Look, it doesn't get any clearer than that. 
God had told them, you know, that look, the entire world is going to be blessed through you, right? The, 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 the Messiah is going to come through you. And yet, here they are trying to mess that up. Verse 4 says, look, they, 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 they can t- take your sons away from, from you and, and, and turn their hearts away from me. And we know that that can happen. We saw it with Solomon. Solomon, who is the wisest man who ever lived, right? But he was also a messed up individual. He was wise, but he made some poor choices towards the end of his life. Beginning of his life, it says that he loved God, and he served him, and he loved him, and he served him, and he loved him. By the end of his life, we see in Kings that he loved many foreign women. He adopted false gods and evil practices because he had been infatuated with these heathen wives. He no longer burned for love for God, but he burned for the desire for these women. One commentator pointed out that these passages that are being read were most likely included in the law that Ezra was teaching. And so the people had no excuse. They knew what was right and what was wrong. Verse 2, it says that they intermingled with them. Which means and insinuates that they were adopting their customs and their lifestyles. They were becoming unfaithful, which was a breach of the covenant, which was a breach of trust. And of course, what we see in this passage is the worst of them all were their leaders. You know, as a leader goes, normally the people are to follow. So when this was all realized, they came to Ezra. They came to Ezra without any delay. They'd only been there four months, and they're starting to recognize this, and they see a problem. And they come to Ezra, and they say, there is a problem. See, when sin enters the camp, it must be dealt with right away. Not left to linger or spread. And of course, you and I, we need to realize that in our own lives. If something is going wrong, we fix it or give it attention immediately. If left to linger, we know what happens. It gets more difficult and leads to greater problems. So, the sin is recognized. But check out what happens in verse 3. Ezra hears about the sin. Verse 3 says, When I heard about this matter, I tore my garment and my robe, and I pulled some of the hair from my head and from my beard, and I sat down appalled. Things just got a little awkward, right? <laughs> I mean, wait, what? I mean, has, has Ezra completely lost his mind? I mean, it seems a bit much. Maybe, perhaps, overkill, right? On the surface it does, but let's take a look at what he does. He, he, he tears his garment and his robe. And by the way, in those times, that was customary when they were dealing with great distress and great sorrow. So that's not really crazy. You get into crazy town when he starts pulling hair from his head and from his beard, right? I mean, have you ever had your own hair pulled? It, it hurts. I know what you're thinking. Dude, you don't have any hair. <laughs> I get it. Let's talk about the elephant in the room, all right? At one point, I had hair. I did have it pulled, and it hurt. So I remember. That hurts. Gentlemen, if you have any facial hair, if you hadn't shaved for a couple days, anyone ever wear those, uh, those shirts that uh, had the zipper? And they kind of zipper up past here. And what happens sometimes when you turn your head? You get a piece of your, your, your beard caught. And you, go, Ow, you know, and it brings tears to your eyes. I mean, that stuff, that stuff hurts. I mean, what would make someone in their right mind cause that much pain? I mean, it, it would have to be extreme, right? It would have to be something that would just shock you to the core to make you do that. It would have to be something so far out of the ordinary. I mean, look, it's just sin. It's just sin. But isn't that the problem? It's just sin. See, that mentality is weakening the walls of the church and causing it to implode. 
And it's not just weakening the church in general, but it's weakening the moral fabric of our families and of our marriages. To look at sin as just sin is downright appalling. That's how Ezra describes it in verse 3. He says, he sat down appalled, which means he was shocked. He was horrified. He was astonished. What a reaction. Again, we look at it as overkill, but that seems to be exactly what's wrong with us today. We just don't see sin as a big deal. I mean, you're a sinner, I'm a sinner, we're all sinners, everybody's sinner, so we get used to it. We get callous to it. Before too long, it doesn't even bother us anymore. I remember as a kid, after dinner, it was customary, my mother and father retired to the parlor and uh, sat and watched their news, and we brought them their coffee and their tea. Um, that probably doesn't happen much these days anymore, but... Uh, you can get news all over the place, but my dad would have to watch the evening news. And so I would bring him his coffee or his tea, and I would walk in, and my dad's watching the newscast, and he's just shaking his head. He's watching all of the, the, the bad things that are happening on TV, the, the sin that is, that is just ravaging our world. And no, he wasn't pulling out his beard or, or his hair, but he was visibly shaking. It affected him. We've come so accustomed to seeing sin put on display that literally doesn't bother us anymore. We see it in our TV shows. We see it even in our cartoons, our movies, our ads, our books, and of course, we see it in our government. We see it and it doesn't even phase us. And I know I'm guilty of it. I know that I am. We talked about it last time we were together, right? About how the word sin is even offensive to people. This word sin, literally, it's an, it's an archery term. It's, it's meant for missing the mark. God has a mark of something that he wants us to hit. And then the way that we should be, and we miss that every day, that's, that is sin. And it's offensive to people. And so we use that word less and less, even in some of our churches. Because we wouldn't want to make anyone feel uncomfortable. Or perhaps even bad about the way that they're acting. One preacher put it this way, he says, discomfort is problematic. Anytime, anytime we have some sort of discomfort, we say, oh, I'm uncomfortable, and we're asked, oh, where does it hurt? Oh, it's just everywhere. Okay, here, take two of these. You don't like the way you feel, then let's do something about it. Let's take that discomfort away. Well, I'm telling you today that I think perhaps it's time we have a little discomfort in our lives. <laughs> now, let's get one thing straight. I'm not telling you to pull out your hair. Or pull out your beard. We would have way too many bald people, and there's enough people on our team. We don't, we don't need you. If you have hair, that's okay. Rock it out. That's fine. Perhaps we could respond the same way Nehemiah responded. See, Nehemiah, I think maybe he could have the right idea. See, Ezra was like, ah, I'm so mad. And he pulls out his own beard. Nehemiah goes, ah, I'm so mad at you. And pulls a beard out of someone next to him. We, we could do that. Look, either way. We need to start reacting to sin appropriately or we will find ourselves unfazed by it. And that's when apathy rolls in and we just don't care anymore. When we say we don't care about sin, we are essentially saying, God, I don't care about you. We need a proper perspective on sin. See, our perspective is way too often based on purely a selfish angle. See, you and I, we, we want to be good people because... We want other people to like us. We, we want to be just generally, because we, and we want to stay away from sin because sin brings consequences. I mean, look, if you're riding down the road and somebody cuts you off, in your mind you're thinking, I could give them this little time. 
I mean, just a, a little tap, right? I mean, you are judging me now. You've thought it, okay? You've thought it. I've often thought maybe uh, bumpers on the, the front of the car, right? You look, and boy, you don't do it. Well, first of all, because you're not crazy. The second of all, you don't want to hurt anybody, and you certainly don't want to get caught. But should we not want to do it because it's the wrong thing to do? When we look at sin, we need to not look at it from a humanistic perspective, but from the Almighty's perspective. We can see God's perspective on sin all throughout history. God told Adam and Eve, look, don't eat from this tree. What'd they do? from the tree. What happened? I got kicked out. Sin, death entered into the world. Cain was told to come to him in a certain way. He didn't. Ends up killing his brother. He's marked for life. Mankind got so selfish that, 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 and, and so sinful that God looked at him and said, I'm done with all of you. Noah, you the man, all right? I'm, I'm going to start over with you. Going to kill everybody else. Seems ex- extreme, but that's the way God looks at sin. He flooded the entire world and started over with Noah and his family. That the people were told to, to spread all throughout the world, but yet they congregated in one spot and they thought, oh, we're just going to make things just for our own pleasure and our own glory. And God said, no, 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 you're not. So he confused their language and he made them move in a different direction. Think about the Israelites, the, the, the people that are in this book that we're talking about now. They were told constantly, look, follow God with all of your hearts. Distance yourself from the people that, 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 that don't. And, and they disobeyed him time after time after time. And they were in captivity for 70 years. A whole generation died off. Let me tell you, God hates sin. It's repulsive to him. So much so that when Christ took our sins on himself, God the Father turned his back. God despises sin. So you and I, we should be absolutely appalled by sin and the way that it offends our God. And when we recognize sin for what it is, then we start to realize that we are part of the problem. We have sin in our lives. So it's not just about recognizing it in everyone else's life. That's way too easy. I, you know, we can, we can start pointing the fingers, right? It would be much easier for me to stand up here and tell you how bad you are and point at you. But of course, we all know. When you point at someone, there's more fingers pointed back at you, right? I am the chief sinner. I have a problem. As I stated at the beginning, I struggle so much with this passion because all of a sudden, I'm smacked right in the face with all of my shortcomings, and guess what? i got to deal with them. So what must I do? I must have a proper reaction. But the reaction must lead to the action of confession. Look at verse 5. After he reacted appropriately, then he fell on his knees before God and stretched out his hands in prayer of confession. One author says this, Falling to his knees showed Ezra's attitude of humility before God. Spreading out his hands indicated his need of God's help. It seems from the text that he literally spent all day mourning over this sin. And then he comes to God in prayer. Verse 6, he says, Oh my God, I am ashamed I'm embarrassed to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen above our heads, are literally drowning in their own sins, and our guilt has grown even to the heavens. Look at these emotions that he's going through. He's in agony over what the people have done, but notice this. This is, this is, this is, this is key, this is important. Notice this. Look, look at the words he uses. He doesn't refer refer to them or they or those filthy, wretched people. He uses inclusive terms, I, us, and we. He includes himself with the people, recognizing that he has his own faults. He's ashamed 
and embarrassed. If you're reading the NIV, it says he's disgraced. Ashamed and embarrassed it has to do with humiliation and shame and dishonor. Those two words are often used in the Hebrew text together. He's feeling guilt for what has happened. Now you may be thinking, whoa, whoa, whoa. aren't we safe from guilt? That was taken from us. I don't need to feel guilty. Okay, in one sense, you're correct. We, as believers, were no longer guilty before God for the sin that dominated us before we came to Him. See, the guilty verdict was passed down through His Son, Jesus, and that penalty was paid. The wrath of God was taken for you and I. But see, we're talking about the same word in in different ways. See, guilt is that feeling, that remorse, that shame, that responsibility you feel for the things you have just done. To say that we should not have that guilt is simply not true. Guilt is that thing that says, you know what, you just screwed up. It's the conscience inside of you saying that, man, I shouldn't have done that, it was wrong. And As believers, we understand it. We're no longer condemned, right? Death has been defeated. We will no longer be under the wrath of God because he paid the price. But if you are able to go on sinning, And doing things that you know full well are not the things that bring glory to God, that they're in fact the very opposite, and go against what He has called you to do, you are not able to feel anything about it, you're in a very bad place. A very dangerous place. Apathy is a terrible thing. No matter what context we talk about it in. When you just don't care anymore, it doesn't bother you. I'm reminded of uh, a student that came to me... uh, when I was fresh out of college, I was a youth pastor at Iron Alliance Church for a number of years. And uh, I had a, a student come to me. And uh, he was a, a junior or a senior at the time. And he was just, he was upset. Uh, so much so, I mean, the, the, the guy was just, he was bawling on my shoulder. He was just broken up, crying and, and weeping. And, and he just came to me and said, look, I'm, I'm struggling with this. I, I have this sin that I just keep falling into. And, and it's just, it's rocking me to the core. And, and he's weeping before me. And, 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 and we talked. And I, I'll, I'll tell you, I was not as alarmed as I would have been had he come to me and said, eh, I did it again. God will forgive me. He was visibly shaken and upset. See, sin should have an effect on us in some sort of way. It should bother us so much that we come to the Lord in prayer and confess. That's what Ezra continues to do as we read in verse 7. Since the days of our fathers, to this day we have been in great guilt. There it is again. And on account of our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands to the sword, to captivity and plunder, and to open shame as it is this day. Warren Wearsby in his commentary says... Why was Ezra so ashamed? He answers his own question. He says, because his people hadn't learned their lesson from all the trials that the nation had experienced. The new generation had grown up in Babylon and become so accustomed to the evil around them that they had no true fear of God. They should have been like Paul in Athens who grieved over the wickedness that he saw. But instead, they first accepted Babylon's sinful ways and they improved it. Then they enjoyed it. This compromising attitude went with them to Jerusalem and even revealed itself in their disobedience. Look at what Ezra is doing here. He recognizes what has been done. He doesn't shy away from it. He steps up. He takes ownership. He didn't try to get out of it. He didn't point fingers. He was ashamed because after all God had done for them in the way that they were acting. He continues that thought as we jump down to verse 10. Where he says, what shall we say? I mean, he's essentially saying, God, I, 
You got nothing to say. We are guilty. No excuses here. Flat out guilty. And of course, how do we know that they're guilty? Yeah, we're, we're told at the beginning, but we're going to get even more of an indictment here in verses 11 and 12. Verse 11 says, uh, the land which you are entering to possess is an unclean land. This is God talking to them. With the uncleanliness of the people of the lands. With their abominations which have filled it from the end to the end with their impurity. Get this. So now, do not give your daughters to their sons. Nor take their daughters to your sons. And never seek their peace or prosperity. Essentially what Ezra's doing is he's making a case against themselves. Isn't this so far out of the ordinary? To actually step up and take responsibility. He says we're guilty and it couldn't be any more clear, right? Do not, nor, and never. And what do they do? They do the complete opposite. I wonder why. Why is it that we sin? Why is it that we tend to do the things that we don't want to do? Isn't that what Paul wrestles with in Romans? I, I do the very things that I don't want to do. This is not a new problem. Sin and it's, it's enticing. Look at Hebrews 11, 25, 24 and 25. This is the great uh, faith chapter. It says, By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy, get this, the passing, what? Pleasures. The passing pleasures of sin. Sin is enticing because there is a certain pleasure in it, Right? It's the kind of pleasure that doesn't last, though. We get that. We're drawn to it because of what it can offer us in the short term. We're blinded by the pleasure of it. We're, we're drawn to it, much like a, a moth to a flame. Or uh, How many of you had those uh, zappers, the bug zappers, when you were, you were growing up, right? They were fun to watch, right? Because the moths were like, oh, look, look, it's a bright light, bright light. Woo, <laughs> done. <laughs> it brings more pain than it does pleasure. Look, we have a hard enough time with the temptations that just pop up from time to time because the sin easily entangles us, as the word says. But we don't need to go looking for it. We, didn't need, we don't need to be going looking for sin. That's essentially what the Israelites were doing. They knew full well the right thing to do, and yet they chose the opposite. And guess what? That is the very definition of a fool. There are too many fools running around out there doing everything that brings them pleasure, even if it is something that is contrary to what the Lord wants. You're looking at a fool right now. I'm glad I didn't get any amens. That was good. James. <laughs> We're foolish when we make those decisions. We, we really are. We make those foolish decisions and, the, and the, we, we should have that guilt that, that, that comes with it. Verse 13 talks about it again, right? After all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and our great guilt. Look, again, he brings that guilt. Guilt, and the word guilt is, is four times in this chapter. And one, as one commentator points out, and I love this. He doesn't pull any, any punches. He says, guilt always shuts a person's mouth before God. Sinners can give him no logical reason for their sins and no acceptable excuse. Ezra gives no excuses. He knows it won't work, so he doesn't use it. Isn't this, this is heavy stuff? Sin is very much a part of our life. It's a part of the life that we observe, and it's also a part of the life that we live. And you're, you're right, as believers, we're, we're not slaves to it anymore. As believers, yes, we have the power of the Holy Spirit to, to find the way of escape and not to give in to temptation. However, it does not give us an excuse to sin, and it certainly does not exempt us from dealing with sin in a very real and practical way. Sin should anger us. 
We should have a reaction to sin when we recognize it. It should move us to a place where we don't stand for it in our lives. You and I, we need to step up and take responsibility for our attitudes, the way we, 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 we act and, and, and our words. Literally no excuses because there's no hiding before holy God. So we recognize that sin. We recognize the needs that need to, that, that have to happen, the change that needs to happen. But, but here's what we need to do. Okay? We need to lighten the mood a little bit. We also need to recognize what God has done for us. See, as heavy as all this is, all is not lost. Once we recognize the sin and what we need to do, we also need to recognize that we are lost without Jesus. Look at the end of verse 13. He says, After all that has come upon us, our evil deeds, our great guilt, since you, our God, have requited us less than our iniquities deserve. Ezra recognized full well what he did. He took responsibility. He stepped up. He confessed it. And then he realizes one thing, that God is in full control and he is merciful. He says, God, you could have punished us a whole lot more. He recognizes that they treated, he treated them better than they deserve. It was God's mercy, not the people's merit, that earned that. <clears throat> See, Ezra was acutely con, uh, conscious of God's mercy, as one author says. The very fact that any remnant had survived was living proof of it. For even their punishment had been merciful and light. And in verses 8 and 9, uses vivid terms, characteristic, characteristically concrete for God's many-sided loving kindness. See, God had allowed them to, concern, to, to return. Look at verse 9. He, he had freed them from their bondage. God did not forsake them. Not only did He not forsake them, but He extended what? He extended loving kindness to them so that they could uh, restore the ruins of the city and ultimately bring glory and honor back to God and His people. What a beautiful picture that Ezra has painted for us. A picture of a people that were they're held captive, they're set free despite their sinful ways. Grace and mercy was extended to them. God never left them, He never forsook them, and treated them far better than they deserve. How many of you realize that God has treated you far better than you deserve? It's true. I mean, do we realize the depth of our captivity and sin? Do we, we, we were held captive by the bondage of sin. There, there literally was no way out. We could not do it. We were helpless and held captive by the sin that so easily entangles. But here's what Scripture tells us. In Romans 5, it says, While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died for you and me. There was a penalty that had to be paid, and He paid it to you, for, for you and me. And as we sang today in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made Him who knew no sin to become sin for us. Look, I didn't deserve that. You don't deserve that. But yet he did it anyway because he's a sovereign God. Meaning he does the things that will ultimately bring honor and glory to himself. He not only died for us, but what good would it have been had he died and been defeated by sin and death? The Bible, history itself, shows that he in fact defeated sin, he defeated death, and he rose from the grave three days later. See, that was my punishment. That was your punishment, and yet he laid down his life. For us. As Ezra stated. What can we say? Jesus literally paid it all. The ultimate guilt. The condemnation has been taken away. For those who believe in him. And as we move into this Easter season. That's what we celebrate. We remember what Christ did for us on that cross. All is not lost. We are not lost. Because God has not forgotten us. Just like he did not forget about his people in captivity. So Ezra brings his prayer to a close. Verse 14. He recognizes, look God, I, I get it. You could have wiped us off of the map. He didn't. He closes in verse 15 and he says, O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous 
For we have been left an escaped remnant, as it is this day. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for no one can stand before you because of this. Listen to what authors, one author says about this prayer. He says, the prayer ends with clear recognition that God had every reason to wash his hands of this community as he once threatened to do with an earlier generation. This was through Moses. There was no, it's not an exaggeration. There were other Israelites scattered abroad who he could have fulfilled the promises through. Ezra had not the heart to plead as Moses had that God's name would suffer in such a case. The author says his prayer was naked confession, without excuses, without the pressure of so much as a request. Ezra didn't ask anything of God. Just a confession. True and honest. We certainly could use more of those prayers in our life. We have a lot to learn from Ezra this morning. What we've seen is that Ezra, he wasn't a guy that had it all together. Yes, he, he understood and, and seemed to have a proper perspective on things, especially when it came to sin. He recognized it for sin and he, he responded properly. But look, I will tell you, we are in danger. You and I are in danger when it comes to our recognition and response of sin. One pastor that I was reading over the last couple of weeks says this, Because we are so desensitized towards sin, we fail to have the proper response toward it. Whether it's our own sin or the sin of others. We minimize it. We justify it. We ignore it. And go on our way unaffected by it. Friends, we cannot go away unaffected by our sin or unaffected by what God has shown us here today. We must make a change. I must make a change. And it starts with recognition and it continues with the response. There was a pastor, and I'm closing. There was a pastor that walked into a, a meeting, and I don't recommend that we do this, by the way. A pastor wanted to make a point about sin to his leadership team. So he walked into the next meeting and throws a writhing, hissing, six-foot-long rattlesnake on the conference table. Everyone, what? Screamed, scattered, knocking over chairs and knocking each other out of the way to get out of the room. The pastor says, look, when sin enters a room, we're not nearly as apt to leave as when a rattlesnake comes in, but they both can do serious damage and even kill you. We need to start getting serious about recognizing sin. I need to, and we need to respond appropriately. So, so here, here's what I want to do. I, I, just, I want to wrap this whole thing up in, in one little short paragraph. It'll be up here on the screen. This is what I want you to take with you as you leave today. And I want you to be genuinely changed and affected by this. We, when we recognize sin, we need to respond appropriately. How do we do that? We mourn over it. We confess it without making any excuses before God. But we fully appreciate this. We fully appreciate the grace and the mercy that we have received from God through our salvation. That's what God's calling you to do today. May we leave here different than when we walked in. And leave here challenged. I know I have been as I've wrestled with this. And I hope that you will wrestle with it as well. Let's pray. Our God, we recognize this passage it's not an easy one. It's, it's, it's a heavy passage as we talk about sin. And it, it makes us very uncomfortable to talk about our own sin. 
so much easier to point at others tell them what they're doing wrong. Lord, what we realize through history and through your word is that you are repulsed by sin. We need to have a proper reaction to sin in our own lives, in the world around us. Or we need to, to respond to it, to mourn over it. Father, to confess it to you. Your word tells us if we confess our sin that you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. Lord, we can get so down in the things that we struggle with, the sin that so easily entangles us. Father, when we do, help us to realize how blessed we are as believers. To know you, the true and living God. To know that you have paid the price for that sin that we struggle with. And while we still struggle with the sin and, and we must deal with the consequences when it happens, Lord, we understand that you have taken the ultimate penalty. So Lord, as we celebrate that this Easter season, as we get into it, let us remember that as we go throughout our life and throughout our days. Lord, strengthen us. Give us the strength and the ability to come before you without excuse, to confess sin and to react appropriately. Lord, thank you for your word that we can dig into. I thank you that it just, it shines the light on us sometimes and points out the things that we just, we need pointed out. Lord, I pray that we've been challenged this morning. I know I have. I thank you for the work that you're doing in my life, and I pray the same for each person here today. And we want to be careful that we recognize who you are and give you all the praise and all the glory. It's your son's precious name we ask all of these things. Amen. Let's stand, worship the Lord.